here, we'll give them a little intro. So Dr. Jill Alcock is an emergency medicine physician at the University of New Mexico. I've known Joe for a lot of years, um, does a lot of cross-country skiing, backcountry skiing, also has a, a focus on evolutionary biology, um, and has done a lot of research specifically looking at altitude adaptation, and should be a great lecture. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for the introduction. So how's everybody feeling? Me too. Anybody have a little bit of a headache? I do, but it's probably not AMS. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, genes. We're going to talk about our guts, and uh, I'm going to bring some microbiome into this talk. And I'm going to focus really on uh, three high-altitude populations, the three groups of people that we think have lived the longest at high altitude. And I'm going to go ahead and give you guys the... Uh, punchline here, which is that when we think about our acclimatization to altitude and ways that we can avoid getting acute mountain sickness and perform better at high altitude, essentially many of the things that we do to cope with high altitude, the high altitude people, the people that have been living at high altitude the longest, they don't do, or they do it very differently. And I think that there's some lessons there, that when we think of ourselves as being adapted or acclimatized to high altitude, we're kind of fooling ourselves in, in a way because our acclimatization is imperfect. And imperfect acclimatization is what leads us to get high altitude uh, sickness, which is what I'll describe. Uh, so here's a picture of me on Cotopaxi. Cotopaxi is a volcano in the Andes in Ecuador. It's the second highest mountain in Ecuador. Anybody know what the top or the highest mountain in Ecuador is? Chimborazo. Have you climbed it? All right. This meeting actually reminds me of the trip that we, this expedition we did to Cotopaxi. We had a, we had a lecture at about 12,000 feet. Um, we had a little group uh, together much like this, and we talked about high altitude illness, and then we climbed Cotopaxi the following day, which was tremendous fun. Altitude is just over 19,000 feet. I didn't summit. I didn't get to the top of Cotopaxi. So here's a picture, this is Katie Swank. Katie actually gave a version of the lecture which I'm giving now uh, in Ecuador on this topic of high altitude people. So there's Katie, uh, she went ahead and summited on this day. Uh, behind her, uh, you see there's a guide fiddling with his ropes and then there's Diane Rimple, who's not here today but she's an, a colleague of ours and a high altitude expert also. And you can kind of see from this image of her that she's not looking so great. So she, in fact, her lips are blue. Uh, she was definitely having a headache and after we had a little conference, um, we decided to turn around. And I'm not going to blame her. I felt just as bad. <laughs> I definitely had the lassitude, and I was definitely exerting myself pretty much up to my limits. So this was a good place for us to turn around. The landmark here is called Yanasacha. It's a big rock volcanic outcrop on Cotopaxi. And that, so that's the highest I've ever been. So it's 18,600 feet. So that, that's my personal limit. Um, so we uh, decided to hike down. I think we both probably had at least mild AMS. And does anybody remember some of the definitions of acute mountain sickness? What do you have to have to have AMS? You have to have a headache. I think of AMS as being headache plus. So it's headache plus GI symptoms. So anorexia, nausea, vomiting. Headache plus sleep disturbance. Headache plus lassitude. Headache plus dizziness or extreme fatigue. So that's AMS. And we, we had this. So again, despite the fact that we had spent several days at high altitude, we thought of ourselves as being acclimatized to altitude, we were still at risk for getting acute mountain sickness. And that's because we are genetic lowlanders. And unless we have some Tibetans in the group or Andeans in our audience, 
All of us are genetic lowlanders. We evolved at low altitude. We have a susceptibility or a vulnerability to getting sick at high altitude. So we can think of this genetic vulnerability that we have to high altitude as being an example of gene environment mismatch. So most human genes we can think of evolved in the, the Pleistocene. So that's when much of our evolved responses, much of our genes that allow us to adapt to different environments evolved. So we really are cavemen in a, in a modern environment, but at least for us genetic lowlanders, we evolved in a lowland environment and we're not evolved to deal with high altitude. Having said that, we do have several genes and genetic loci that are responsible for responses to low oxygen tension. This is hypoxic inducible factor. So we all have these genes in ourselves. And in fact, hypoxia inducible factor is a conserved gene that we can find among all vertebrates. Uh, all metazoans uh, seem to have this gene. And so we have a capacity to cope with low oxygen. When I say that we've not evolved to deal with high altitude, it doesn't mean that we haven't evolved responses to low oxygen. It's just that our responses are different from some of these high altitude people. So let's jump into it. Let's talk about the folks that really have spent many generations at high altitude and who have evolved responses that are different from ours. So pictured on the left there, actually on the right, is that's Machu Picchu. So we're looking in, in Peru. Does anybody know the altitude at Machu Picchu? It's somewhere between Santa Fe and Taos in terms of elevation. It's not super high altitude. It's above 7,000 feet. We're going to do a little spot check here. We'll find out. 7,600 feet, a little higher than Santa Fe, lower than Taos, New Mexico, 79. So it's not extreme altitude at all. So people that climb the Inca Trail and think that they've done something remarkable, um, they have, absolutely. And I, believe me, this is on my bucket list too. Uh, but it's not an extreme altitude. Having said that, the Andeans who lived at high altitude, the Altiplano in the Andes can be well above 10,000 feet. And there have been generations of people living there, we think, for about, we'll say, 10 to 12,000 years. The first Native Americans that came across the Bering Strait from Asia made their way down into South America. This is a relatively short exposure. And when we think about evolution, 10 to 12,000 years is not all that long. Uh, but it's enough to allow Andeans to have evolved some special adaptations to high altitude. We'll talk about the genes here in a moment. Phenotypically, the thing which is different about the Andeans as compared to us is that they have more circulating blood volume. They have a higher hemoglobin, higher hematocrit, higher concentration of red blood cells. So they have a hematological adaptation to altitude that makes them uh, different from us. So this is even, even compared to acclimatized, say, people of European descent who live at altitude, they'll have a higher hemoglobin than we do. Here's the work done by Cynthia Bell. The dashed line on the right there is, is a frequency distribution of hemoglobin. And you can see that really there's very little overlap uh, between the Amira, this is a Bolivian group, and what's pictured on the left are Tibetans and U.S. people living at sea level. Basically, I'm at the 50% level, an Amira will have a hemoglobin somewhere between 18 and 19, whereas we, ours males at least, will be between 14 and 15. And you all know that males have a higher hemoglobin than females, which is why we split this out. But even Bolivian females will have a higher uh, hemoglobin. But this is true for all of us, right? Um, who, who lives in New Mexico in this group? So the vast majority of us. Everywhere in New Mexico is relatively mild to moderate altitude exposure. So just by virtue of living at altitude, and so here we have hemoglobin for people living at, in Denver. 
It's higher than it is at, for people living in Cleveland or Los Angeles. So this image shows hemoglobin concentrations for people of European descent living at different altitudes. All of us have higher hemoglobins by virtue of living at least at moderate altitude. So this is a feature of you know, acclimatization to altitude, and we have the capacity to respond to high altitude even without having generations of high altitude living. But like I said, the Indians are off the chart. So there's a downside, as you might imagine, to having lots of red blood cells. And we see this in cyclists, right? people that uh, inject themselves with erythropoietin. Um, what problems do they get? Yeah, you can get a heart attack, you can get sludging of the red blood cells, you can get a stroke, you can get a pulmonary embolus. A lot of the stuff that we emergency physicians worry about in the ED can be worsened by having a, a particularly high hemoglobin, right? So Carlos Monger uh, described this in the 1930s and 40s among people living in the Andes. They were particularly susceptible to a problem of having way too many red blood cells. So this is called chronic mountain sickness. And pictured there on the right is another individual, also from Bolivia, and he has blue lips. He's got blue extremities. So instead of having increased oxygen carrying capacity and permitting him to, to deal with low oxygen partial pressure of altitude, he actually is profoundly hypoxic. So these individuals with chronic mountain sickness have they're at risk for congestive heart failure, uh, core pulmonale, and death. What I like to tell my medical students and my students when I teach them evolutionary biology of medicine, which is an area of interest of mine, is that nothing is free in medicine. You can have an adaptation that allows you to cope with something, or you can have a, some phenotypic plasticity, some, some changes that you can, you can engage in that, that permit you to deal with something, but almost everything comes with a trade-off. Trade-offs are built into our biology. Everything comes with a price. So this is true of our biology, it's true of our genes, it's also true of medications and things that we do to our patients. This is sort of a universal thing. But the trade-off involved in having lots of red blood cells is chronic mountain sickness. What's interesting about this is that I mentioned that there are three high-altitude people. The Andeans are one, and they are the, they're the population that has lived at altitude for the least amount of time, 10,000 years. There's another group that we think has lived at altitude for at least 20 to 50,000 years, and those are these folks. So who do we see on this image? Yeah, these are Sherpas. This is Everest Base Camp. This is in Nepal. Uh, they had successfully climbed Everest. And as it turns out, that the ethnic group that has climbed Everest the most are, it's not Europeans, right? It's Sherpas. So they have a, a different set of genetic adaptations to altitude, which permits them to cope with high altitude stress and gives them a functional capacity. They can exercise better. They don't get acute mountain sickness. And they, with regard to the chronic mountain sickness, they get way less of it than we do, and they get way less of it than Andeans do. So I should mention that that chronic mountain sickness does happen in Europeans living at high altitude also. So let's take a peek at folks living in the Himalayan plateau. So same image. This is just that same blood uh, frequency distribution. What you can see here, though, is for males anyway, Tibetans look very much like sea level Europeans. The population uh, living at high altitude, they don't make more red blood cells. They don't have increased eryth erythropoiesis. That the gene which is involved in oxygen sensing, hypoxia-inducible factor, um, it doesn't create this, the production of more red blood cells in the bone marrow. Unlike what happens to us, at least a little bit, and unlike what happens in a, to an extreme degree in Bolivians. So same is true for females, although you do see a bit of separation there um, with, with the uh, hemoglobin between Tibetan females and sea level people. Still, 
pretty much overlapping. So they don't have a red blood cell adaptation. What do they have? I mean, Tibetans have had more time to evolve different ways of coping with altitude, and it turns out that they have adaptations that, one, the major mutation um, that we've been able to identify in their hypoxia-inducible factor gene actually decreases the amount of red blood cell production, so they're less sensitive to low oxygen. But they do have different ways of dealing with high altitude, and it's primarily a pulmonary adaptation. Andeans do this too to a certain degree. Andeans have an increased AP diameter, anterior-posterior di diameter to the chest, so they have bigger lung volumes. But what makes the Tibetans special and different from Andeans, and really different from us too, is that they have a, they have a respiratory adaptation. They breathe one point times faster, and this is at rest, without even exercising, you know, as compared to us and as compared to Andeans. So it's primarily a respiratory adaptation, although that's not all. They do other things that are interesting too. So just to recap, um, pictured there on the left, who's that? Tenzi Norgay. And who's on the right? Sir Edmund Hillary. Who's more likely to suffer mountain sickness? Well, presumably a, a Kiwi. I think he's from British extraction. Edmund Hillary is. But folks that have lived at altitude do better. So I mentioned genes. Actually, before I get into genes, there's another adaptation that Tibetans have that is different from us. So we're going to talk, I'm sure, about high-altitude pulmonary edema. All of us, probably even at this altitude, are going to have some degree of um, hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. This increases our risk for high-altitude pulmonary edema. Tibetans don't get this. They don't get the reaction to low oxygen that, that causes pulmonary vasoconstriction. So this makes them quite different. So that's a great question. Um, so the question is, what are Tibetans you know, hypoxic um, at altitude, despite the fact that they're breathing faster? And the Andeans, even though they're doing better than Europeans, will be mildly hypoxic. Tibetans also are mildly hypoxic at altitude. Okay, the genes that are responsible. This is a gene, genome-wide association study uh, in which they try to find candidate genes among the Tibetans that are different uh, as compared to the Han Chinese, so another population that lives in Tibet, ethnic Chinese living in Tibet. And as compared to the Han Chinese, the genes that are most different all fall along this particular, particular genetic locus. It's called EPAS1. And EPAS1 is a these are polymorphisms in the hypoxia-inducible factor gene. And what the main thing that we've been able to discover so far is that the genes here are, produce less red blood cells. So they don't respond to the hypoxia. There's no increase in, uh, in red blood cell uh, function. But a lot of the regulatory genes that go along with this are doing other things like the change in the muscle tone in your pulmonary arteries and uh, other responses to hypoxia. So here you go, EPAS1, which is uh, the gene associated with the transcription factor, hypoxia-inducible factor, associated with low hemoglobin concentration with Tibetan Highlanders. And I want to give a shout out to the lead author here. This is Cynthia Bell. She's worked with Tibetans and the Andeans and the Ethiopian Highlanders, which is the next group that we'll talk about, uh, for many decades, dating back to the early 1990s. And she uh, is an anthropologist who has looked at the ways in which these evolved changes have happened and is a remarkable anthropologist. Okay, so I, I mentioned that Tibetans do something different. Andeans are different yet. And the genes involved have something to do with hypoxia-inducible factor. This is a brief discussion about what hypoxia-inducible factor is doing in us 
and it's not just altitude. So this is really the key. This is a review that looked at hypoxia-inducible factor in critical care. It's involved in all these different organ systems, lungs, kidneys, bone marrow, heart, vasculature, and the bottom line is that HIF activation to hypoxia happens in trauma, infection, and critical care. So what I want to propose to you guys is that for us, genetic lowlanders, our oxygen sensing capacity has to do with hypoxic conditions that happen at low altitude. And these really are trauma, injury, and infection. We're evolved to deal with these problems. We're not really evolved to deal with super high altitude. And this explains kind of why we get sick at altitude, in my mind. Okay, but for those genes that are involved in hypoxia-inducible factor, here are a variety of different variants, both in the Andeans and the Tibetans. They're genetically different from us. Just keep that in mind, don't memorize this slide. Let's move into the third group. They're in some ways the most interesting group. These are the least studied of the three high altitude populations. These are the Ethiopian highlanders. The altitude there is a little bit lower than what we're experiencing or what we see in Tibet and in the Andes. They live somewhere around eight, 9,000 feet. There's pretty good evidence, we think, that we are out of Africa and human populations that have lived at these high altitude places in, in Northeast Africa probably have lived there longer than the Tibetans and longer yet than the Andeans. And that duration of exposure may be the reason why they are the best adapted to high altitude as compared to all of us. So we had a question earlier about hypoxia. What's remarkable about the Ethiopians is if you look at arterial hypoxemia, even at high altitude, they're not hypoxic or they're minimally hypoxic. They'll have, they'll have an oxygen saturation hovering around 90%, so they're not technically hypoxic, which is super cool. And then this is looking at the erythrocytosis, the red blood cells. Um, Ethiopians resemble lowlanders at sea level in terms of the amount of oxygen in their blood and also in the number of red blood cells. Tibetans, as we've described, um, they are hypoxic, but they don't have more red blood cells. And the Andeans are hypoxic and have more red blood cells. So let me say that again. Ethiopians are living at high altitude and they don't show it, all right? They don't have more red blood cells. They don't also, if you measure their oxygen, it will appear normal. I want to give you a bit of a caveat. When people have really looked, yeah, their oxygen's a little bit lower. You know, it's lower than a sea level person, but they're not clinically hypoxic. And it still is hovering around 90%. Ethiopians, probably because of some of the, these changes on the EPAS gene, they also are insensitive to hypoxia. So this looks at cerebrovascular responses. So we know that in, in us, one of the reasons why we get a headache is we'll get hypoxia-induced cerebrovasodilation. The pipes open up in response to hypoxia, delivers more blood flow. This can predispose, we think, to leakiness and, and high-altitude cerebral edema. But the Ethiopians don't get it. In this study, they were looking at Peruvians versus Ethiopians. You can make an Ethiopian brain hypoxic, and they don't open the pipes. They don't get that vasodilation. So... All the things that we do at altitude, they don't. That's the key. Which genes are responsible? Well, this seems to be the one, again, don't have to memorize this one, but BHLHE41, which is involved in the hypoxia pathway and is a hypoxia-inducible factor gene. It also is responsible for circadian rhythm. I find this interesting because all of us will have some degree of sleep disturbance at altitude. Even probably many of you, even without being aware of it, might have had some periodic breathing last night up at 10,000 feet very, very common to have sleep disturbance. So they have a, a change in a gene which is responsible for circadian rhythm. We don't know exactly what's going on with that. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me? I like to go up to the top of the Sandia Mountains. As Jason mentioned, my favorite thing to do is, is Nordic skiing in the backcountry of uh, Sandia Mountains. No lift ticket. 
nice clean air. Lots of reasons to enjoy doing this. I like to think of, of myself as being relatively well, we'll say acclimatized to high altitude. But again, from what I've shown you is that the high altitude people, they have genes which are different from ours. They have distinct genes from each other. And in many ways that we respond to oxygen, they have down-regulated those responses. I'm, I'm quite certain that my hemoglobin and hematocrit are higher than if I had lived at low altitude and don't go up to 10,000 feet. But again, we are not adapted to high altitude with regard to low oxygen. Our adaptations to hypoxia have evolved for different reasons, and those are primarily infectious. So here you go. So here's a paper that shows that HIF-1 is responsible for the response to infection by E. coli. So a UTI, a uropathogenic infection. There's a bunch of papers like this. And if you think about, I mentioned that hypoxia pulmonary vasoconstriction. Well, that's a very useful response if you have regional hypoxia in part of the lung where the alveolus is filling up with pus and, and fluid and you have a pneumonia. You're shunting blood to other parts of your lung, which permits you to have a homeostatic response and preserve some degree of normal oxygenation. So hypoxia-induced pulmonary vasoconstriction is good for us with pneumonia. It's good for us when we have pulmonary injury. It's good for us in critical illness. This is why our oxygen responses have evolved in that way. Similar slide showing all the ways that HIF-1 is expressed in shock, in trauma, in infection, in the gut, in skeletal muscles. A whole variety of things are going on uh, that are important and complicated. So I've talked a lot about genes and genetic adaptations to altitude. But what I want to also tell you in the last few minutes here is that there are other genes that are involved with responses to high altitude and other genes which are different for the high altitude people as compared to us. So this is an image showing the community structure of the gut microbiome, all right? So when we think of ourselves genetically, we have to think about our own genes, but also the genes and the microbes that are in our guts. And here we have high-altitude Han Chinese, so again, they're genetic lowlanders. Here we have low-altitude Han Chinese living in Shanghai, and these folks were up in Tibet. And here we have Tibetans. So what this shows you is that the community structure of the gut microbiome varies by altitude, and also varies by population. This is a sort of a new area of research, one that I'm very interested in, but it turns out the microbiome has something to do with high altitude responses and AMS. Recent paper published December 2018, just a few months ago, suggesting that the gut microbiome is involved in our responses to high altitude and maybe, maybe at least in part, involved in acute mountain sickness. For a recap, folks, the microbiome is the collection of microbes that inhabit our bodies. There are about 30 trillion of them. We are perhaps more microbe than we are human. We are certainly that way when it comes to genes. Our genes are outnumbered uh, in terms of microbial genes. There's a hundred times more microbe genes in me than there are human genes, and these are important. And, and lest you also forget, most of, most of this, this is a, a tree of life, looking at the genetic diversity of life on the planet. Um, Picture here are all plants and animals. So again, we tend to focus on humans, the animal that we're most interested in, and plants and animals, the things that we can see, but there's this other world out there which has important impacts on us. And here's an image of the gut microbiome changes with high altitude. Uh, folks that were hypoxic at altitude um, had increased E. coli, increased clostridium perfringens, so some nasty pathogens were increased in the guts of these folks that were uh, exposed to high altitude. So this is something else that we need to pay attention to. And dating back to the early 2000s, we've known that 
the, not only is the gut microbiota changed at high altitude, but we also have increased gut leakiness. The microbes that are in our guts can leak out of the gut, go into the bloodstream, and elicit an inflammatory response. So this is the, a cartoon version of that. We got high altitude hypoxia, changes in the gut microbiome, endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide leaks into the bloodstream, elicits inflammation. At least part of high altitude sickness seems to be generated by some of these impacts as well. So when we're out there exercising at high altitude, mountaineering, we're gonna get some degree of this. Um, the good news is that we can acclimatize to this too. By preparing and exercising, increasing heat shock proteins, we can actually increase the barrier function of our gut. One of the things that happens at high altitude is that we have increased adrenergia. So if we'd measure our blood pressure and our heart rate, it's gonna be a little bit higher at altitude. So one of the ways in which hypoxia may actually cause changes in the gut microbiome has to do with stress hormones, in particular epinephrine and norepinephrine. This is scary though because uh, we know that epinephrine can transform the gut microbiome from a protective, perhaps a beneficial community of microbes to a virulent, pathological bunch of microbes. And I've done some work along these lines. But this image shows that norepinephrine causes E. coli populations to increase and increases their virulence. I'm worried that this, is, this kind of goes along with what we see at high altitude. It also happens clinically when we give our patients epinephrine, right? Epinephrine is not just a drug, it's a neurotransmitter, and it's a, a general stress hormone. The bottom line here is that it does bad things to our gut microbes, and that's something to keep in mind. I've given you guys a lot to think about. The fact that we are genetic lowlanders, our ways of dealing with low oxygen are evolved to deal with infection and trauma, not high altitude. This gives us a vulnerability to getting sick with high altitude mountain sickness. It also can predispose to chronic mountain sickness if we live for uh, many decades at high altitude. Uh, the, the three populations that we've gone over, we talked about the Andeans, and do you remember their adaptation? They make more red blood cells, right? They have more erythropoiesis. They have more increased oxygen carrying capacity. This allows them to cope with the decreased partial pressure of oxygen at high altitude. The Tibetans are different. They don't make more red blood cells. They breathe faster. They have pre predominantly a pulmonary adaptation and the, at least the genetic changes we've been able to identify seem to reduce the sensitivity to hypoxia that makes more red blood cells. And then the Ethiopians, they have some also genetic changes in the HIF gene, um, but they seem to be the best adapted of all. They don't breathe faster. They don't make more red blood cells. They do have changes in, in nitric oxide trafficking. They do seem to permit more robust oxygen uptake without breathing faster. Having said all that, we can't change our genomes, but we can change our gut microbiota. And so I brought in a couple of props here today. This is kombucha. I'm not necessarily advising this, but at least it raises the possibility that we could change our gut microbiomes by the things that we eat. I suspect that this is an area which is underappreciated in high altitude medicine. This is kombucha. Kombucha is a fermented drink. It's loaded with microbes. Here's yogurt. So the idea is that we might be able to take a probiotic, a microbe, that may be protective against high altitude. This is pure speculation on my part, but there's decent basic science to support that approach. And then the last thing I want to leave you with is that I've told you that we have evolved an oxygen sensing capacity, that this dates back to the precursor to all vertebrate life on the planet. And it tells you that responding to low oxygen is important, and it's been important for, for life. In fact, they do genetic knockout studies, and they tried to knock out the HIF gene in mice. Those mice don't even survive. They don't make it even to, to birth. You need to have this HIF gene because it's so, so important for all kinds of things. 
angiogenesis in particular, to make new blood vessels, you have to have the HIF gene. So we can't survive without it. But it looks like one of the biggest things it does for us is it allows us to cope with infection and trauma. To some degree, it allows us, it has a general purpose effect that allows us to cope to some moderate uh, high altitude stress. But the high altitude people, they're even better adapted for it. Bottom line here is that we have evolved different ways of coping with low oxygen. And we should expect to find trade-offs involved with that. What we've not evolved to deal with is supranormal or supertherapeutic levels of oxygen. So in the ER, we give oxygen to people all the time. And the, from the evolutionary standpoint, this is, was well put by these two authors. They say that biologic defenses against hyperoxia may not be as robust as against hypoxia, given that during evolution, no organisms would have been exposed to supraphysiological oxygen tensions. We're just learning now that there's a problem with too much oxygen, too. There was the recent IOTA trial that was a meta-analysis of giving people high oxygen levels in critical illness and in the ED, and it turns out that it increases mortality. You die more often. And you die more often at an oxygen saturation of 96%. We wouldn't blink an eye at that, right? It doesn't have to be 100%. 96% seems to be the cutoff, and it increases the relative risk of mortality by 1.2. So this is a thing that we should be paying attention to. Again, we've evolved responses to low oxygen. Those oxygen responses are imperfect. It leads to us to have vulnerabilities to problems, but in some ways, high oxygen can be equally bad. So I will, I'll leave that as a final thought. And I think at this point, I will stop and I'll open it up for questions. Let's see, yes. Try two, three DPG, which again is responsible. Yeah, so that would permit more oxygen offloading into, into tissues that need it. This is something that happens in acclimatized individuals. I actually don't know the gene involved. I do suspect that has something to do with, uh, with HIF. We wouldn't need to find a genetic mutation involved with that. That would be, that's part of our, we have this, this plasticity that permits different responses in different environmental contexts. Yeah, thank you for that. Intrauterine growth retardation. Yeah. Absolutely. So Cynthia Bell has studied that. So she argues that not only do these changes that we see in Tibetans, do they permit increased exercise performance. They allow people to climb Mount Everest, but they have reproductive advantages. A uh, big problem for populations living at altitude is, has to do with yeah, delivering blood through the placenta to the developing baby. Many babies are born small. They get intrauterine growth retardation. But it turns out that Tibetans have less IUGR than do Han Chinese that live at altitude. And so she was looking at changes in that EPAS gene, thinking that maybe that has something to do with the improved um, birth weights and improved you know, reproductive success, which is the currency of natural selection and, and evolution. She was interested in that question. And she's not been able to find that exactly. Um, so it turns out that EPAS1 doesn't necessarily help folks with blood flow to the placenta, for instance. But it's an area of active research. And good question. Yes, right here. So I showed you a slide looking at Han Chinese, genetic lowlanders, and Tibetans. There have been lots of studies looking at people of European descent that go up to high altitude, either simulated in a hypobaric chamber or uh, people living at high altitude. And we do know that our gut microbiome does change. And the, the, the one feature that I focused on was that increase in E. coli. And I want to point out that E. coli is not our friend. It really is a pathogen. And when activated by stress hormones and by hypoxia, it can become virulent and harmful to us. Right, so they're not hypoxic, and hypoxia-inducible factor is a hypoxia sensor. Like I said, they seem to have decreased sensitivity to low oxygen across the board, and they're not particularly hypoxic. I love that question. So the question is, how do they respond to infection and trauma? I think the prediction of this scheme that I laid out to you is that everything has trade-offs, and if hypoxia-inducible factor 
especially one alpha, is responsible for responses to trauma and infection, then these populations that have decreased sensitivity to oxygen, maybe they do worse with infection and trauma, especially if they, we take them to sea level. I would love to study that. I looked for that information and couldn't find it. Back here. Yeah, so the question is, do they have more E. coli in their gut microbiomes because of some of these changes in hypoxia-inducible factor? I don't know. I'm not sure if anybody knows that, the answer to that question, but that's a, a really interesting thing to look at. I would also suspect that the people that have lived the longest at altitude would have ways of coping with their gut microbiomes that probably are better than ours at altitude. All right, yes. There's work showing that your microbiome can be transformed after 12 to 24 hours. People who have gone from a vegetarian diet to a carnivorous diet, they will undergo a rapid transformation of their microbiome, a complete um, overhaul that happens really fast. So this doesn't take weeks. It can take hours. Those microbes, think about their generation time. They can replicate like that. Yeah, so it'll be really, really fast. All right, well, thanks very much, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all.